It's Midday Magazine for Thursday, June 29th. I'm Shelby Herbert. The U.S. Forest Service awarded grants this month that could help encourage more logging on the Tongass National Forest. Two businesses in Southeast, including one right here in Petersburg, have received hundreds of thousands of dollars to retool their mills. KFSK's Thomas, Thomas Copeland has the story. If you head up Falls Creek in Petersburg, you'll hear Brett Martin before you see him. Martin runs Alaska Timber and Trust with his business partner, Mike Dumman. They bought this old mill up here last year, and Martin knows it inside out, or nearly inside out. The John Deere skitter in the back here, it's a 540B, I believe. There's a chainsaw grinder there. Um, there's the cat. What's the cat called? Uh, meow. <laughs> I don't know. What is the cat's name? This mill is about to get a refurb. It's one of just two in Alaska awarded Forest Service grants to upgrade its saw. In Thorn Bay on Prince of Wales Island, JK Forest Products were given $150,000 for a resaw upgrade. And here in Petersburg, Martin and Dumman were given $300,000 for a small log sawmill upgrade. What these two upgrades have in common is that they're designed to process young trees. Here in the Tongass National Forest, which covers most of southeast Alaska, trees can be sorted into two categories, old growth and young growth. Sheila Spores is the deputy forest supervisor. She says there's a big difference. Old growth is forest that's never been managed before. You know, between the ages of 200 to 600, it's old forest. And then young growth forest is forest that has been harvested and is now a new young forest. According to the most recent forest plan, the Tongass can supply enough logs for nearly 10,000 log trucks. Political warfare has raged for years about how much of that is old or young growth. The latest ruling came a few years ago. So in 2021, the Forest Service capped the amount of old growth that could be harvested from the Tongass in any given year at 5 million board feet then that means there's 41 million board feet of young growth. But Spore says the demand for young growth doesn't come close to that. Most of the small mills that are still operating in Southeast are all focused on old growth. Karen Peterson is from the Southeast Conference, a regional economic development organisation. She says one of the reasons is simple, equipment. Why small mills focus on old growth is primarily because their saws are set up to mill old growth. Peterson says new tools will make these mills more competitive. I'm pretty excited about seeing all of these small sawmills uh, change their milling capacity because they're going to be able to enter into a market that right now is capitalized by only the sawmills out of the lower 48. Now, you might be thinking, surely all forms of logging come at an environmental cost. Dominic de la Sala is the chief scientist at the conservation group Wild Heritage. He studied the Tongass for four decades. So you might be a little surprised that de la Sala would support any type of logging. Young growth doesn't have nearly as much biodiversity importance. Uh, it doesn't have nearly as much carbon built up in the trees because they, there's just not the big old growth trees there. Some people might listen to this, Dominic, and say, surely it will be better, though, to not do any logging at all. You know, we need timber and we could be smarter about where we get it from, how we do it. So it's bioregionalism. It's just like growing your food uh, in a region is going to reduce your emissions from transport. And in downtown Petersburg, you don't have to go far to find support for locally sourced timber. Hey, Bennett. 
Bennett McGrath runs Anchor Properties, a local real estate agency. There's great demand for timber in this town because there's a lot of vacant land that people want to build on. And they just can't because the cost of barging up timber is cost prohibitive for them. And Bennett says nearly all construction timber has to be shipped up from the lower 48. Why bring sand to the beach when we have it here? It would be a cost savings, a significant cost savings, like possibly 20% below market value because you've now shortened that supply line. But back up at Falls Creek, Martin and Dumman say even after they install their new saw, they still have to get a hold of some wood. Supply. Supply is the biggest challenge we have in front of us. If we can get a combination of timber between the borough, the state, and the Forest Service, with that, I think we can actually get enough supply to keep us steadily moving forward. But if we can't get the wood, there's no point in having a mill. Well, these guys need to get back to work. So from a very noisy Petersburg mill, I'm Thomas Copeland. The Yukon River Summer Chum Salmon Run is coming in below average, but strong enough to allow a limited subsistence harvest. Alaska Department of Fish and Game Area Management Biologist Dina Jallen is monitoring the return on the lower river, where she says, as of Sunday, almost 280,000 summer chum had been tallied by a sonar counter at Pilot Station. It's coming in at least earlier and maybe a little bit better than the last three years. Jalen says the current projection is that the summer chum run will exceed the lower end of the drainage-wide escapement goal. The preseason forecast for summer chum was between 280 to 900,000, and then the current projection right now is around 800,000. So we're still within the preseason range, uh, but we're projecting to be above that minimum number of 500,000 for drainage-wide escapement. Jalen says that's enough to allow limited subsistence harvest of summer chum. State and federal managers have announced a schedule of openings for lower river districts, which allow use of dip nets, beach scenes, hook and line, as well as manned fish wheels. Uh, Gear limitation, Jalen says, aims to minimize incidental harvest of Chinook salmon. You have to be there actively using it and monitoring it and releasing king salmon alive. Chinook salmon harvest is closed as the run is coming on par with last year's record low return. Last year, um, we only had about 50,000 kings total, and this year could be something similar. So those are very low run sizes, and uh, we really want to see as many of those fish get up to their, their spawning areas as possible. The Yukon River Chinook salmon run reached its historical midpoint at Pilot Station Sunday, June 25th, and as of then more than 21,500 Chinook had been tallied by the pilot station sonar. That's about 4,000 more than were counted by the same date last year. Military weapons experts will visit Unalaska on Friday, tomorrow, to respond to what might be an unexploded device that was found on an Unalaska shore. Fire Chief Ben Knowles responded to the call earlier in the month when a citizen reported a suspicious object. So a hiker came in and um, reported what they believed to be was a old unexploded ordinance resembling some sort of landmine, anti-personnel, or other uh, mine Knowles says down there in the S-curves. Knowles says the device is partially submerged in the ground, making it difficult to move without disturbing it. This is the first time.
time that I've dealt with something that's embedded in the ground um, or this close to town. In my experience, we've had several unexploded ordinances over the time period that I've been here on the island, and it's usually like a hand grenade or munitions of some sort, and they're actually physically brought into the station. The police department couldn't safely deal with the device themselves, so they sent pictures to an expert with the Army Corps of Engineers. He said that it could resemble something similar, and so that we should use caution. Knowles says there is no imminent threat to the public, but advises the community to use caution and stay away from the location. Cones are in place to keep people away from the site, which is near an area known as the S-curves. We've checked on it fairly frequently. We're heeding the warnings of the EOD and the, the specialists to stay clear of the area um, as much as possible until they can, they can get that team down here. Representatives from Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson and the Army Corps of Engineers are scheduled to arrive in Unalaska tomorrow. Governor Dunleavy halved the state's one-time public school funding increase earlier this month, his biggest cut to next year's budget. Bryce Edgman, Bristol Bay's House representative, says he sees serious consequences for the cut. I think our school districts are at a point where all these rising costs, including inflation and sort of in the post-COVID era, really are coming home to roost and uh, are going to take their toll. In Dillingham, however, school district business manager Phil Hewlett says the district doesn't allocate one-time funding before it's in its bank account. We never budget it until we receive it. That way we're not uh, scrambling around trying to figure out how we're going to cover if we don't receive it. According to Hewlett, the district plans to put the funding towards contract negotiations with the union, which will occur next year. But Hewlett says even if it's remained intact, the one-time increase is not a permanent solution and that the base student allocation from the state isn't enough to support the school's needs. What it all boils down to is a lot of us just don't have the funds to get quality teachers and quality programs because we don't have the funding to produce it and to go forward in a sustainable way. Um, We get one-time funding so we can take a big leap, but then there's no more money to support it, so it falls away. He says that when the state's funding isn't sufficient for the district, they have to depend more on the city. The, The BSA has been flat funded for several years. Inflation has gone through the roof. Our costs keep going up and we just, the formula has to be affected. And until that is done, then we put more pressure on local governments and local entities to help us to be able to meet that, that shortfall. A few days before the governor's veto, the Dillingham City Council voted to amend next year's budget and fund the district at $1.7 million, the first increase in several years. The decision comes after months of testimony and comment from the district on the risk of cuts to extracurriculars. Hewlett says that with the additional city funding, the district can balance their budget. KFSK has an open airwaves policy. We encourage the public to express personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. These pieces are available on our website, kfsk.org. 
following the scheduled radio broadcast. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of KFSK. The following was submitted for broadcast by Beverly Richardson. Beverly is an elected member of the KFSK board. She is representing her own personal views. Hello, this is Beverly Richardson. I serve as a member of the KFSK Board of Directors, and I am a member of KFSK. On June 18th, Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy signed the $6.2 billion State of Alaska Operating and Capital Budget. The following day, he released a list of more than $200 million of line-item vetoes that he had made to the budget that the State of Alaska's legislature had previously approved. Approximately half Governor Dunleavy's vetoes were for education-based funding. Others were for social case programs, the Alaska Marine Highway System, state roads and harbors, numerous capital improvements, and many other badly needed projects throughout the state, some quite small. Governor Dunleavy's vetoes included cutting the $1 million funding that the state legislature had approved and put into the budget for rural public radio stations statewide. The intent of the legislature was that the Department of Administration allocate these public radio grants to rural stations that serve 20,000 or less persons. What does that mean to KFSK? In the years prior to the Walker administration, governors had fully funded the legislators' request to public radio, resulting in approximately $130,000 to $140,000 a year in funding to KFSK. In the Walker administration years, 2016 to 2019, Governor Walker partially cut the legislature's budget request, but still each year included approximately $88,000 for KFSK. Throughout past years and again this year, the state of Alaska legislature has recognized the importance of public radio to the health and safety of small rural communities and included funding for public radio in its approved budget. Each and every year of the Dunleavy administration, the legislature has approved full Walker-era funding levels for public radio, but each and every year, 100% of these funds have been vetoed by Governor Dunleavy, leaving these small stations struggling to survive. This is the fifth year in a row that Governor Dunleavy has zeroed out the legislature's funds for public radio. This has resulted in the last five years of a cumulative loss to KFSK of $440,000 of state funding. Much like KFSK, other Alaska rural public radio stations provide their local communities with timely emergency alerts and notifications and local programming such as news during times of emergencies and severe weather. These communities otherwise would lack access to this vital information. The Dunleavy cuts to public rural radio throughout the state has been devastating to these small stations. I'd like to offer thanks to our local legislators, Senator Bert Stedman and Representative Rebecca Hemshoot, our other Southeast legislatures, and all legislators throughout the state for their continuing support of public radio. I am, however, saddened that Governor Dunleavy chose to veto these funds and chose to deprive KFSK and other small rural community radio stations of this badly needed funding. I am Beverly Richardson, a member of KFSK Board of Directors and a member of KFSK. KFSK encourages public expression of personal opinions, ideas, and creative works. Views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of KFSK. Beverly Richardson submitted the commentary as an individual. For full disclosure, she is an elected member of the KFSK Board of Directors. The KFSK Open Airwaves policy is available on kfsk.org. And for more information, please call General Manager Tom Abbott at 907-772-3808. 
Reporting for KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert.